One First, day heaven extended its irresistible arm and held the cleaver of fate in its fist and the cut us off. Uh, radio died in the fall of 1953, I suppose, that last season. And it had to die suddenly and violently because the networks could no longer sustain it because they intended to go into the new medium television. If they had tried to hold on to radios they might have for a season or two, there would have been other moneyed interests to create the television industry, you see. But on that occasion, the radio industry had only to turn to its sponsors and said, we have something new for you to buy, something wonderful and three-dimensional now. So we're going to discard this little thing, radio, and the sponsors, very understandingly, nodded their head and bought the new product. Those actors of us who had been made our living in radio were completely discarded. There were some very bright young men in television, and there was an opprobrium to having been a radio actor. It was said that you were a ham, that you made faces when you acted, and that was true to a certain extent. You're saying something that has never been said before, to my knowledge, that the networks themselves killed the medium. Well, they had to. Yes, yeah, surely you had to destroy. It's the story of the little Jewish lady who had two chickens, and when one fell sick, she killed the the well one in order to make chicken soup for the same. <laughs> <laughs> when ABC Radio took out a broadcasting magazine ad in 1954 touting their year-over-year -year sales growth, they juxtaposed theirs against the other three networks in the same period. It painted a bleak picture for the industry. In November of 1952, total network monthly advertising billing was $14,477,000. The next year, advertising numbers were down to $13,664,000. The loss of revenue was reflected in the loss of ratings. As drastic as the ratings decline was at the decade's beginning, it was the mid-1950s that saw radio ratings die on the vine. During the 52-53 season, five shows still had ratings higher than 10, with Amos and Andy leading at 14.2. A year later, People Are Funny led all shows with a rating of 8.7. In 1955, Jack Benny would lead with a 5.7. Hans Conried remembered that time. Yes, they were engaged in an industry that had little future. That was obvious to all, because the technical facilities of television were apparent. And so they were all prepared to sell and buy and produce, so why not discard the old model as far as they were concerned? It may have been difficult on us, but it was quite understandable. Consider it now, there were many of us engaged in it. It was, it is hard to explain to persons who have never uh, utilized it as an evening's entertainment as we in our time did. But I suppose it was as avidly followed and it caused as much social conversation and certainly did, I suspect, rather less harm than the popular one that might as well be nameless now, in which I also make a living. It was a a very rich theatrical form that has not been matched, I think, in many aspects by anything that has come later. But for those people working in radio who also found their way to TV, this period was a golden age for the character actor. They were now recognized for their performances on both mediums, and with the increased profile came an increase in opportunities. It was a marvelous time. I learned that happily I was able to sustain myself as an actor. I don't know what I should have done for a living. I would have had to learn something else. What about from the listener's standpoint? Do you think that I think uh, today's young people I... have lost something? Well, I don't. I, I, that's, you know, with changing times, of course. The young people, I have four kids myself. 
And I know they have been educated or they have been entertained by the television screen. They have not read half the books at 20 that I read at 7 or 8, you know. They have not the literary background. They are in high school and college, and they are obliged to, but to read for pleasure, they don't. And uh, radio always seemed to me an extension of reading. Indeed, those of us who became radio actors must have enjoyed reading, or we would never have had the facility. When I tell you that at 16 or 17, or when I was 18 and became a professional actor doing then what I'm doing now, some 35 years later... I was a pretty slick reader, and uh, indeed it was such a facility that was sometimes superficial because you very often gave your very best performance the first reading, mm. and you never felt that it was necessary to improve it. So there was that unfortunate aspect of it. But by and large, uh, we were a pretty slick bunch. It was apparent to everyone that TV had moved in and taken over. What the radio industry would do about it was still uncertain. As February of 1954 got underway... Both new shows and old shared the spotlight. Oh, life could be a dream If I could take you up in paradise up above If you would tell me I'm the only one that you love Life could be a dream Welcome to Breaking Walls, episode 124. My name is James Scully. Tonight on Breaking Walls, we pick up our 1954 miniseries in February. We'll focus on radio programming and national news from that month. If this is your first time listening to Breaking Walls, welcome to the show. You can find the series on every podcasting platform and at thewallbreakers.com. Tonight's opening song is the crew cut Shaboom, a number one hit in 1954. Join the Breaking Walls Facebook group to keep in touch with news, snippets, photos, and other additions to the podcast at facebook.com slash groups slash the wallbreakers. You can also support these shows for as little as a dollar per month at patreon.com slash the wallbreakers. I remember Jack Webb before Dragnet. As a matter of fact, Herb Ellis was living in San Francisco at the time. He and Jack were very good friends. And when Jack was coming to Los Angeles, Herb called me and said, meet him at, I don't forget which studio, and audition for him. He's going to be doing a program called Pat Novak for Hire. Oh, yeah. mm-hmm. And you remember the show? Yeah. So that's where I met Jack. I met Raymond Burr there. And... A woman that I wonder if she's still around, her first name was Yvonne, a very, very low, sexy voice. Yvonne Patey? Exactly. Is she still around? Yvonne Patey. Yeah. You remember the voice? Anyhow, that's my recollection of Jack Webb at first. When Dragnet debuted in the ratings in the fall of 1949 under the sponsorship of Liggett and Myers, it did so with an 8.5. 
That number was 64th overall. Two years later, in the midst of TV surge, Dragnet's radio rating had climbed to 8.7, now 14th overall. The TV version debuted in 1951. In 1954, its TV rating was second, only behind I Love Lucy. Part of the reason the radio version was able to stave off a ratings decline longer than most other shows was creator Jack Webb's ingenuity, as Virginia Gregg, Harry Bartell, and Peggy Weber remembered. Yeah, you called me and said we're going on television. Can you think of any script you've done you'd like to do? And I said, yeah. And I told him, and we did it, and it was because it was about an illegitimate baby. They never repeated it. Another Peggy and I worked together on, I think, what was the third episode? It was the third episode of the series. That was shot in the original series. TV series. And the impact of that series is the sharpest of anything I've ever seen. The original impression that it made coming into people's living room, all of a sudden I'd been in radio, I don't know how many years out here, and the name might have been known, but people started to say, hey, it. And it was, it was shocking the first time that it happened, walking down Hollywood Boulevard, one appearance on Dragnet. And that was the third episode. I think they released it earlier than that, though. Well, what I think really made it so remarkable, no one had taken close-ups with television shows until that time. And Jack did that entire third show in close-up. It was... It was really very innovative, which is, you know, you look back on it now, you wonder how that could have been such a surprising thing because films had been using close-ups for years. But he saw that you only had 30 minutes to get a show across. And you had and a he, small screen. So. And, of course, he also was using that teleprompter machine, which uh, I found very disconcerting and very Speaking of close-ups, he called and said, I want you to do this part. It's about a, a woman who can't have a baby. And I said, Jack, I'm seven months pregnant. And he said, that's okay, we'll shoot you from the waist up. <laughs> and I did it. In February of 1954, Dragnet's radio version was airing Tuesday evenings at 9 p.m. Eastern Time on NBC. The February 2nd episode was entitled The Big Filth. Ladies and gentlemen, the story you are about to hear is true. The names have been changed to protect the innocent. Dragnet is brought to you by Chesterfield, made by Liggett and Myers, first major tobacco company to bring you a complete line of quality cigarettes. You're a detective sergeant. You're assigned a juvenile detail. Four children in your city have apparently been abandoned by their mother. There's no trace of the woman's whereabouts. There's a possibility of foul play. Your job, investigate. Today, you hear these three words everywhere. Chesterfield's for me. The cigarette tested and approved by 30 years of scientific tobacco research. Chesterfield's for me. The cigarette with a proven good record with smokers. And first cigarette to have such a record. Chesterfield's for me. Chesterfield gives you proof of highest quality. Low nicotine. The taste you want. The mildness you want. 
The Chesterfield you smoke today is the best cigarette ever made. And best for you. Dragnet, the documented drama of an actual crime. For the next 30 minutes, in cooperation with the Los Angeles Police Department, you will travel step by step on the side of the law through an actual case transcribed from official police files. From beginning to end, from crime to punishment, Dragnet is the story of your police force in action. It was Friday, February 8th. It was raining in Los Angeles. We were working the night watch out of juvenile detail. My partner's Frank Smith. The boss is Captain Powers. My name's Friday. I was on my way back from Juvenile Hall, and it was 7.46 p.m. when I got to 1335 Georgia Street, the office. Joe? Yeah, Irene? You talked to Captain Powers? Yeah, the way it looks, Frank's going to be tied up in court for a couple of days. going kind of hard. Gang war, isn't it? Yeah, seems like everybody in town's climbed on this one, really making a big thing out of it. Uh-huh. Fellow Skipper said I was supposed to give you a hand on anything that might come up. Then you just made it. Hmm? Woman in the next office, you better talk to her. What's it about? It'll be better if you got it straight from her. Was she a crank? I don't think so. See what you can figure. All right. Mrs. Eggers? Yes, Miss Gardner. You ready to do something about this? Yes, ma'am. I'd like you to meet Sergeant Friday. Joe, this is Mrs. Eggers. Now, how do you do? Miss Eggers? If you'd give him the story the way you told it to me. You bet I will. Sit down, young man. I'll tell you all about it. All right. Get your book out. I beg your pardon? Your book. You're going to take some notations, aren't you? Well, if you'll just tell us what this is all about. Yeah. Well, I don't want you to get the idea that I'm the nosy type. I'm not. It's just that I take an interest in the things that go on around me. Civil-minded is the way they put it in the papers. Uh-huh. Of course, there are people who say that I pay too much mind to their business, but it isn't true, not a bit of it. If you tell the sergeant what happened. Oh, yeah. Well, these people moved into the house about six months ago, the five of them. Yes, ma'am. Stevie, Pamela, Carol, Martin, and the mother, Rowena. Four kids and the mother. All right. Would you like to go on? Well, now, right off, I could spot this woman. I've seen a lot of them. How do you mean that, Ms. Eggers? You can make it crystal if it's any easier. Yes, ma'am. What did you mean? That you've seen a lot of them? Alkies, you know. Drunks. Mm-hmm. Well, she's one. I could spot it right off. Her and those four beautiful children. Yeah. Well, the first few months they lived there, I'd maybe see her a couple times a week, you know, going in the house or coming out. Just a couple times a week. I see. Last week, ten days, I hadn't seen her at all. Not even a little sight. Mm-hmm. So right off, I figured that something was wrong. That's the way it looks to me. All right, thank you, Ms. Eggers. We'll check on the house right away. Well, that's what I wanted this policewoman to do. I told her I'd go right along with you. Well, that won't be necessary. Now, listen, young man. If there's anything wrong with them kids, I want to know about it. I'm going to do my part. The whole neighborhood's talking. Is that right? Sure. Little Stevie's been to all the houses looking for something to do, asking for work. It just seems to me that there's something wrong about the whole caboodle of them. Not seeing the mother and the way the boy don't eat the lunch plate. Not seeing the other kids. There's something that don't fit over there. All right, ma'am, we'll look right into it. You just do that. We'll see what I say is true. Thank you, Mrs. Eggers. Don't go thanking me. Just trying to be civil-minded, that's all. Mm-hmm. Just seems that there isn't anybody who cares about those kids. Well, that's not true, Mrs. Eggers. What? We do. 8.14 p.m. Policewoman Irene Gardner and I left the office and drove over to the address the Eggers woman had given us. The house was a small, one-story, clabbered building located on the rear of the lot. The front yard was overgrown with weeds and there were neighborhood advertising papers lying around. When we arrived, there was a faint light on in one of the front rooms. Irene and I went up to the front door and we knocked. We got no answer. I tried the door, but we found it locked. There was no sound from inside the place. The shades were drawn over the windows so that it was impossible for us to see into the house. 
We walked around to the rear and tried the back door. It's locked. Yeah, doesn't look like there's anybody home. Mm-hmm. Well, let's talk to that Agers woman again, huh? All right. Doesn't make a lot of sense, does it? From the story she gave us, the kid should be at home. Well, she might be seeing things, Joe. You know, trying to figure out some way to get attention. Yeah, it might be. Didn't seem like that to me, though. Joe? What? What do you got there? The front window. There, you see it? Yeah. There's somebody in there. Come on, let's go. answering. Come on, open up in there. We know you're in there. Come on. Open the door. What do you want? Police officers, let us in. There's nothing wrong. Go away. No, we can't do that. Now, come on, open up. Who are you going to arrest? Nobody. We just want to talk to you. You sure that's all? That's right. What do you want? Are you Pamela Telford? I haven't done anything wrong. Well, we didn't say you did. Then what are you doing around here? What are you looking for? Is your mother in? What? Is your mother home? Well, yeah, she's here. Well, we'd like to see her if it's all right. You can't. You can't see her. Well, I'm afraid we're going to have to. She's lying down asleep. That's why you can't talk to her. Well, what's the matter, little girl? Nothing. Why'd you ask something like that? Don't you think you better let us in? We're going to have to talk to your mother. But she's asleep. She's tired. You can't talk to her. You can't. Ah, come on. You want to go and wake her up? There's some things we've got to talk to her about. I wonder if we could come in. It, it's kind of wet out here. Hmm? How about it? Then you can get your mother and we can have our talk, huh? I guess you can come in. I guess it's all right. Come on in, Joe. Yeah. The front room was about 12 feet square. The only light in the room came from a candle and a jelly glass on a table. The only furniture in the place was the table that held the candle and a torn artificial leather and chrome couch. The floor was covered with paper, rain-soaked cardboard boxes and dirty clothes. At a half a dozen different places, drops of dirty water were seeping through the roof. The water was being caught in empty tin cans that had been placed around the room. To the left was a door to a bedroom. In it, in a wooden crib, were two children. From the descriptions we'd gotten from the Eggers woman, we recognized them as Martin Telford, age four, and his sister Carol, age two. As soon as the children saw Irene and me, they hid their heads under the dirty blanket that covered the crib. There was nothing else in the room except a dirty mattress lying on the floor in one corner. From the appearance of the bedding, it hadn't been laundered or changed in at least three weeks. On the other side of the house, a small kitchen was piled high with dirty dishes, pieces of rotting food, and empty tin cans. The plumbing in the house had apparently been out of order for several weeks. While Irene and I looked over the house, the girl who'd met us at the door, Pamela Telford, followed us. When we got back to the front room, she started to cry. <laughs> all right, you want to tell us where she is? Come on, Pamela, it's not as bad as all that, is it? Here, here's a handkerchief. Here you are. Now, where's your mother? She's out looking for a job. It's kind of late for that, isn't it? I don't know. That's what she's doing, though, out looking for a job. Well, now, why'd you tell us that she was here tonight? Because I didn't know what you wanted. I thought you were trying to arrest her. Well, why'd you think that? Because that's what she said. Your mother said that? Yes. She told us that policemen arrested people. She told us about it, how you did it once to her. Your mother's been arrested? Yes. Do you know why? Because she was. 
Well, what for? Do you know? She got sick. She got sick and they put her in jail. Mm -hmm. That's why I told you she was asleep. I thought that you'd go away and leave us alone. It's sure cold in here. Yeah. Do you have any heat in the house, Pamela? There's a heater in the bedroom. Oh, I'll turn it on. Good. It doesn't work. What? The heater doesn't work. Marty was playing one day and he broke the little rods in it. It doesn't work anymore. Well, we should be able to get some heat out of it. No, you won't. There isn't any gas. They turned it off. Mm-hmm. Well, I think maybe you youngsters better come downtown with us, don't you think? Why? Well, it'll be warm down there, a lot more comfortable for you. We can't go. We gotta wait here. That's all right, Pamela. We'll leave word for your mother where you are. Maybe that's your mother now, huh? No, it's Steve. Who are you? He's a policeman. What do you want? There's nothing wrong here. Nothing for you to come buttoning in for. We want to see your mother, son. She hasn't done anything. Why don't your cops leave her alone? All the time you're after, never leave her alone. You're kind of rough for a little guy, aren't you? That's none of your business. I know my rights. I know I'm good. Well, look here, son. We're going to take you downtown and give you a good meal, just until we can talk to your mother, that's all. Then you're going to bring us back? Well, we'll see. How about Marty and Carol? You taking them, too? Yeah. Going to give them something to eat? Yes, that's right. Okay, we'll go with you. Just for tonight, though, that's all. Just for tonight. You understand? Yeah. One another thing. Yes, what's that? We're paying our own way. I've got money. Anything you give us, we're going to pay for. Well, you won't have to do that, son. Well, I'm going to. We don't need charity. We're getting along all right. Everybody has a little rough luck now and then. Everybody. Mom tries. She really does. She's been looking for a job for a long time. Uh-huh. All right, Steve, you want to help get the others ready to leave? I'm not sure we can go. Well, I'm afraid you're going to have to, son. All right, but just for tonight. But the only reason is that I want Marty and Carol and Pamela to have something hot to eat. There's something wrong with the stove so we can't cook on it. That's the only reason we're going. Just because there's something wrong with the stove. The gas is turned off. No, it isn't. It just don't work. But whatever we eat, whatever we get, we're going to pay for it. I've got the money. Well, now, I told you once before that won't be necessary. Well, it is, too. We're not taking any charity. We've never taken any. We're not going to start now, either. Anything that's done for us is going to be paid for. Yeah, I guess that's right, Steve. Huh? It'll be paid for. Dragnet would continue to air new broadcasts on radio until the fall of 1955, and in repeats until February of 1957. While many shows lost sponsorship, Chesterfield continued to sponsor Dragnet until the very end. With good reason. In 1955, Dragnet was the second highest rated radio show on the air. <laughs>